Ephesians chapter 3, I'll be reading from verses 14 to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it truly is better to spend one day, one moment in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Lord, there's nothing that this world or anything in all existence can offer us that is more worthy than you more glorious than You, more satisfying than You over time, more fulfilling than You, more anchoring than You. There's nothing in this world more than You that can satisfy our souls and anchor our lives in something. And so we rejoice in that song that comes from Your Word, and we pray that You would make that truly the desire of our hearts, Lord. May we be a people more so at the end of this morning than at the beginning of it, that truly say in the depths of our hearts, better is it to be with the Lord than to do anything else or to be anywhere else for all of eternity. Make that the cry of our hearts, I pray, Lord. And give us insight now, Lord, into this glorious prayer that Paul prayed. Lord, it is amazing what he's asking for, and I pray that you would open our eyes to the beauty of it, and I pray that you would make it real to us, Lord. This prayer is not idealized religious language. This is real stuff. And so I pray that you would open our eyes to that fact. And I pray that you would fill us with all the fullness of God in Christ. Oh Lord, answer Paul's prayer this morning, I pray. Do more than just give us insight, Lord, but let us come into the yes and the amen of this prayer in Christ. And so be with me now, Lord, as I speak, and be with all of us now as we listen and do great things, Lord, more than we could ask or imagine, we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. Well, in my view, the book of Ephesians is divided just right in half, two parts, part one and part two, and it's governed by two major sentences, the first of which is found in chapter one, verse three, and if you'll look there with me, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's a big sentence, isn't it? It's a big claim. And I think that Paul goes on in chapters 1, 2, and 3 to explain what that sentence means. He goes on in chapters 1, 2, and 3 to open our eyes to the glory of what God has done for us in Christ. That He's chosen us in Christ and predestined us for adoption in Christ and lavished grace upon us in Christ and wiped our sins away in Christ, and given us wisdom and insight in Christ, and given us the Holy Spirit in Christ, 
and made us alive with Christ and raised us up with Christ, seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And then over the last few weeks we've been seeing that, seeing that in Christ He's uniting all the nations together and reconciling us together to God that we might be in Christ one body, one church, one holy temple, one dwelling place for God forever and ever and ever. Indeed, it's true to say that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians are trying to show us what that means. The second half of Ephesians is also governed by one main sentence, and that's in chapter 4, verse 1, if you'll look there with me. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, Paul is saying, I urge you to live your lives now in a way that reflects the beauty and the glory and the worthiness of the things that we've been talking about in chapters 1, 2, and 3. It's as if Paul is saying, if everything I'm saying is true to this point, and of course it is true, then live your lives as though it's true. Let your manner of life reflect the glory and the beauty and the holiness of what God has done for us in Christ. And then he goes on in chapters 4, 5, and 6 to draw the picture for us of what our lives ought to look like if these things are true in chapters 1, 2, and 3. So the book is really just split right down the middle, part 1 and part 2. The first part explains what it means to say that God has blessed us with everything in Christ, and the second part goes on to explain what our lives ought to look like if that's true. And of course, it's true. Today we're coming to the end of the first part of Ephesians, a part that we have been meditating on, if you can believe this, since November 5th of 2006. It's been a while. At that time we were only meeting twice a month, so it's it's been ten months that it's taken to get to the end of chapter 3. But Lord willing, today and then next week we'll draw this section to a close. And it's probably one of the most glorious sections in all of the Bible, and it is fitting the way that Paul chose to end this section. And if you look there with me at chapter 3, verse 14, we'll see how he ended it. I'll just read the first two verses there. Paul said, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So when Paul came to the end of this part of Ephesians, his reaction was to get on his knees and worship God. And while he was there, he spread out his hands and he prayed a prayer of intercession for the church, for the Ephesian church and for the church of all time. What a fitting way that is to end such a glorious section. Not with a a scholarly type of review of what he's already said, but with an overflow of worship and a prayer that we too would have the eyes to see what Paul saw. That's basically what he's praying. Oh God, let them see what you have shown me. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to spend a few minutes talking about the first three words of his prayer for this reason. And then I want to go on to look at the fuller content of his prayer and then we'll draw it to a close at the end. And hopefully, if the Lord is willing, next week we'll look at the pinnacle of Paul's prayer, which is in verses 20 and 21, namely that everything he's been talking about so far is for the glory of God. We'll talk about that next week, Lord willing. For now, let's think for a few minutes about the first three words of Paul's prayer for this reason. And the first question, as I studied this passage this week, that I brought to the text was, Paul, for what reason? 
If you're saying that you're grounding your ability to put your knees on the floor before God and offer a prayer to Him, what is that reason? And the answer is found in chapter 3, verse 12. But let's begin reading at verse 11. Paul wrote, This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So the reason that Paul bowed his knees before God Almighty was because in Christ he had boldness and he had access to the very presence of God with confidence in Christ. In Christ. That's the reason that he prayed. Now when Paul says that he has and, and we have boldness in Christ, he certainly doesn't mean arrogance, right? He doesn't mean that we should come barging into the presence of God as though God owes us something or as though we can just tell God whatever we want and He has to do things on our terms. By boldness, He does not mean arrogance. And He doesn't mean waltzing cavalierly into the presence of God as though God is our homeboy. I saw that on a shirt a couple weeks ago. Some guys walking around with a shirt says, Jesus is my homeboy. And I wanted to just stop him and say, I'm sorry, but no, He's not. He's the Lord of the universe. He's the Lord of all things. And certainly... By great, amazing grace, He has drawn near to us, and the Bible says even dwells in us. But He's not my buddy. He's not my homeboy. He's the Lord of the universe. And I ought to approach Him with reverence and respect and awe and even trembling at times. Did you know that in Paul's day, if a person was to come into the presence of a king without permission or with an irreverent attitude, that person would most likely be killed. And I'll bet you there are places in the world today that it's still that way. You don't just waltz into the, into the, the throne room of an emperor uh, cavalierly or arrogantly and expect to live through it, right? You will die. You will die if you come before a king like that. best example that I know of in the Bible of this is the book of Esther, which obviously was a long time before Paul, but it still serves to prove the point. You remember the story that the Jews were in a great deal of trouble. There was a plot against them to wipe out the entire race. And God had made it so that Esther, a Jew, had become the wife of the king, Ashuerus. And so Esther's uncle Mordecai figures out that there's a plot against the Jews and gets a message to Esther saying, Please, you must go before the king and intercede for us, that we will not all be killed. And do you remember what her response was? Her response was, I can't do that. If I just go into the king uninvited, he will kill me. Unless he extends to me the golden scepter, he will kill me. But Mordecai pushed on her a little bit and she said, fine, I'll do it, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to get as many people as you can to fast with me for three days, eat no food, drink no water, and beg God to save my life. And so she goes in before the king and by the grace of God, he extended the scepter to her and she was not killed and, in, and eventually she got what she wanted as well. Now listen, this is the wife of the king we're talking about. And he was, she was not allowed to come into his presence without permission or with an irreverent attitude or she would have been killed. Imagine how much worse the case would have been if you were just a, a commoner or just a person in the kingdom and you approached the presence of the king without permission. It would not have gone well for you. And how much more dangerous it is then for sinners like us to approach the Almighty God who doesn't just rule over a kingdom, but He rules over the entire universe. God is great. 
And He owes us nothing, and He's not just a buddy of ours. And we should come into His presence with a great sense of awe and trembling, and a sense of humility and thankfulness that we can even come before Him. I've had many people over the years, especially in seasons when I'm teaching about prayer, I've had people over the years come to me and say that they just don't feel worthy to come into the presence of God. You know, it's not that they don't believe that that the Bible's saying you can come into His presence, they just don't feel worthy. And when someone says that to me, I'm not really in a hurry to falsely comfort them because there's something true to what they're feeling. Every one of us ought to feel in ourselves that we are not worthy to come before the presence of God. I feel that in myself. I have no right or no worth to come before the Lord. However, and this is a big, big, big however, as big as it can get, when a person believes in Jesus Christ and is made one with Jesus Christ, then in Christ we are invited to come boldly into the presence of God with reverence, with awe, with humility to be sure, but we're invited to come into His presence boldly. And that's what Paul means when he says, you come into the presence of God with boldness in Christ. He doesn't mean arrogance. He means that we would even dare to come at all into the presence of God. We dare to come in Christ and we come with a reverent, humble awe. That's what Paul means by boldness. Dare to come in Christ, but come with reverence, come with humility, come with awe at who God is. And I know that this is the kind of thing that Paul means by boldness because look with me at verse 14 and notice the posture that he takes in his body. He says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. I bow my knees before Him. When's the last time that you went to speak with anybody or probably ever in your life, some kind of dignitary, and you bowed your knees before that person? You actually got on your knees before them? Probably never. The only reason a person would put their knees on the ground to talk to a person is because they have a deep sense of reverence and awe and humility in their hearts. And so Paul's physical action was just expressing the reality of a heart that was bowed before the Lord, that was humble before the Lord. And that's what he means by boldness. I have heard preachers say in the past in various contexts that boldness means you come into the presence of God and raise your voice and demand what you want and by faith you get what you want. And I say hogwash. That's not boldness. It's bold even to attempt to come into the presence of God in Christ. And when we come, we come with great humility. That's what biblical boldness comes like. It's a humble approach to the throne of God in Christ. Now what of this word access? Paul says we have boldness and access with confidence. So what does he mean by the word access? Well, I don't remember where I read this story. I read it many years ago. I think it was in an, in, in an E.M. Bounds book. You familiar with E.M. Bounds? He's one of the one of the great writers on prayer from the 19th century. I'd, I'd encourage you, you can get all of his works on prayer, a big fat book like that for like $8. And I would really encourage you to do it. It's the best eight bucks you'll spend this year, that's for sure. Well, in one of those books, I read a story somewhere, and I didn't have time to try to find it this week, of Abraham Lincoln and his policy to let his son come into his presence at any time for any reason. So no matter how busy Abraham Lincoln was, and no matter who he was meeting with, his son always was granted access into his presence. And I remember that the story went that when his son came into his presence, he didn't call him Mr. President like everyone else in the world did. He called him Daddy. 
And so, even though probably everyone in the world except for Lincoln's wife called him Mr. President, he was able to call the President Daddy. And that's what Christ has done for us. He is the door by which we have instant and around-the-clock access to God Almighty. And when we come, we are invited in Christ to address God Almighty as Abba, the Bible says, which means Father, or probably even better translated, Daddy or Papa. It's a very intimate term. It's an intimate term. So God is mighty, and we don't make Him our homeboy or our buddy, but we do call Him Abba, Father, because He's drawn very near to us in Christ. That's what it means to have access in Christ we can go into the presence of Almighty God at any po- at any moment, as a as a child, as a child. Or another metaphor that I thought of the other day was, um, you know, the, that face recognition software stuff. I don't know if it's actually just in the movies or if it's actually existing, but I'm supposing in the CIA or the Pentagon or the FBI, when you go up to the doors there, I bet you they have something where you have to put your face up to it. And, and, and uh, have that thing recognize you. So when we approach the doors that lead into the presence of God, and we put our face up to the face recognition software, and it scans our face, it comes back with our name and the words, In Christ. So Charles Handron, In Christ. And when those words pop up, the light goes green, and the doors fling open, and in I go into the very presence of God Almighty. I have access in Christ. In Christ. And without that, the doors aren't going to open. So in Christ I have access. Without Christ I do not have access. And when I walk through those doors, I come with humility, as I said, and I also come with confidence. Because that's what Paul said. We have boldness and we have access with confidence. And what is the confidence with which we come into the presence of God? This is our confidence. That in Christ, God the Father is favorably disposed toward us. That in Christ, God the Father is on our side. God Almighty who rules the universe is pleased with us. Do you remember that passage where God spoke over Jesus and He said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Well, when you are in Christ, that is the Word of God Almighty over you as well. In in Christ, I am well pleased with this man or with this woman. And I am favorably disposed toward them. And I want the best for them. That's our confidence. That God Almighty, with all of His power, is on our side. Amen. First John 5.14 says this. John says, And this is the confidence that we have toward God. This is our confidence. That if we ask anything according to His will... He hears us. If we go into the presence of God and ask anything in His will, in Christ, He hears us. Or another way of saying that is, He's favorably disposed toward us, and He wants to fulfill the desires of our hearts. And of course, that doesn't mean that He's going to give us anything we want in the way that we want it, right? You probably prayed for a few things in your life that God didn't give you in the way that you wanted it. But it does mean that God will give you all that you need. You know, sometimes the Lord will say to us, no. Sometimes He will rebuke us in His presence. If He didn't discipline us, He'd be a horrible Father. But He's a good Father. And Hebrews 12 tells us that He will discipline us. Sometimes He tells us to wait. Sometimes He tells us, well, we're going to have to suffer for His glory and for the good of our own souls. And sometimes He does give us what we want. And sometimes He even gives us more than we want. But friends, in all these things, 
Our confidence is not that God will do what we want Him to do on our terms. Our confidence is that He is favorably disposed toward us in Christ and He will give us what we need. Our confidence before God is that He will work all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. In His time and in His way, God is on our side. And if God is for you, Paul said in Romans, who can be against you? Well, that deserves an amen right there. Somebody ought to say amen. Somebody ought to say hallelujah. In Christ, we have bold access with confidence to the very presence of God. And that's what Paul meant when he said, for this reason. The reason Paul felt bold at all to get on his knees and pray for us was because of the access he has in Christ. The relationship he has with God in Christ. And here is what he prayed, starting at verse 16. Let's read his prayer. He prayed that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a glorious prayer that is. I wish I prayed like that. I was thinking about this yesterday, how often my prayers just seem so superficial when I read a prayer like this. And how I pray that I and you will learn to pray in deeper and more significant ways than, than we do, more like Paul does. But I see this prayer as four ascending steps, where each step of Paul's prayer becomes the foundation on which the next part of the prayer is built. And so on it goes for four steps. And then the apex of the prayer is verses 20 through 21, which is the glory of God. And Lord willing, we'll deal with that next week. For this week, I want to meditate with you on the four steps of his prayer. And I want to do that just by imagining the conversation between God and Paul. It just came to me this way the other day as I was praying through this myself. And it just so blessed me. And I want to just share with you what I think it might have looked like when Paul and God we're talking about this. I'm not trying to put words in God's mouth or in Paul's mouth, but maybe their conversation went something like this. Imagine Paul coming into a secret place, into an inner room where he could be alone, and getting down on his knees and spreading his hands out before God and praying something like this, Oh, my Father, please take from your immense and your overflowing riches and give to your people strength and power by your Holy Spirit, not in some external way, but in their inner being, in their very heart of hearts. Let the power that raised Christ from the dead, O God Almighty, enter into them by the Holy Spirit in Christ. Please hear my prayer, O God. And then God responds by saying, Paul, my son, yours is a good prayer, but to what end shall I give strength and power to my people? Why shall I grant your prayer? And Paul answers with step two of his prayer by saying, Oh, Father, I want you to give them strength and power in their inner being so that Christ may dwell inside of them, in their hearts, through faith. So that Christ may live in them as they simply believe in Him and trust in Him. I want them to know Christ, Father. Hear my prayer. To which God responds by saying, Paul, yours is yet a better prayer. But to what end shall I make my beloved Son who created all things and who sustains all things 
To what end shall I cause him to dwell inside of their hearts? And Paul responds with the third step of his prayer. Oh, Father, I want Christ to dwell in their hearts so that they will be rooted in love and grounded in love and that they might have the strength to comprehend together with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of you and that they might know the love of Christ in you that surpasses knowledge. Oh God, I want them to know what is beyond their ability to know. I want them to know You, Father. I want them to see You as You are and to glimpse something of the enormity of Your being and the beauty of Your glory and the depth of Your love for them in Christ. Open their eyes that they might see. That is my prayer, Father. Please hear my prayer in Christ. To which God the Father responds back to Paul by saying, Your prayer is yet still a more pleasing prayer to me, Paul. But to what end shall I cause them to see the beauty of my being by the Holy Spirit? And Paul comes to the crescendo of his prayer by saying, Father, I want them to be filled with Christ. I want Christ to dwell in them that they might have eyes to see Your enormity and Your beauty and Your glory so that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. I want them to know You, Father. I want them to know the power of Your resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in Your sufferings. I want them to know things about You. But the height of my prayer is that they would be filled with You that they would commune with You in intimate and eternal and satisfying ways. This is my prayer, Father. And I'm just imagining at that point silence in heaven for just a few moments. Silence. And after a moment, God the Father says, Paul, my son, I have heard your prayer. And I am pleased with your prayer. And in Christ, your prayer has been granted. And I will cause millions upon millions of believers through ages of time to read your prayer and to meditate on your prayer and to pray your prayer from their own hearts and to enter into the yes and the amen of your prayer because your prayer has been granted. Amen. Amen. And amen. Well, I'm not at all sure that that's exactly how the conversation went between God and Paul 2,000 years ago. But I am awfully sure that God's heart for us in this day, 2,000 years after this prayer was breathed, is for us to enter into the yes and the amen of that prayer. And I know that because God preserved the prayer for almost 2,000 years. And we're meditating on it now. And it's here now. And God wants it to be real for us now. This is not just a text for a preacher on a Sunday. This is a text for our lives every day. God wants us to enter in to the yes and to the amen and to the reality of this prayer. And as I said, the reality of this prayer is that Christ would dwell in us that we might know the Father. You know, God has such a passion for us, friends, to know things that we cannot know by natural means. He wants to open up our eyes in the Holy Spirit that we might know God and the power and enormity and beauty and grace and glory of His being. And He wants to give us eyes to see, not as an end in itself, but that we might be filled with all the fullness of Him. And oh, how I have been praying that we would get that this morning. 
I have been begging God that He would open our eyes and open our hearts this morning to see that knowledge of Him leads to communion with Him. He wants you to know about Him that you might have eternal and ever-satisfying communion with Him. The design of God is not for us just to know stuff about Him. The design of God is for us to be a dwelling place for Him in Christ. And oh, the treasure of a communion with God like that. Friends, that is a treasure beyond all the treasures that this earth has to give. I just read yesterday on the internet that the Forbes Most Rich Persons list came out and Bill Gates is at the top again. $56 billion worth of wealth. And I'm telling you, I mean it. This is not just religious language for a Sunday morning. This is coming from my heart. He can have it all. I want the presence and the treasure of God in my life. If I have God, I have all. I have more than $56 billion times $56 billion. I have it all in Christ. In Christ. You can seriously take anything from me. My health, my possessions, anything. But give me Christ. Because if I have Him, I have all. I'm still reading the book that I mentioned to you all a couple weeks ago, Jeremiah Burroughs, um, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Some books I just can't read quickly, and this is one of those. I'm taking weeks and weeks and weeks to get through it because it's a, a great book. Well, I came across a story in there the other day of a man who was Christian and very wealthy, and then I don't know exactly how it happened, but he lost everything that he had, lost all of his wealth. And his testimony was that he was none the poorer for losing everything because all he had was in God and not in his wealth. He wasn't trusting in his wealth. His hope was in God. And so he said, though I've lost everything, my hope is still in God. He said, when I was wealthy, I thought to myself, blessed be the name of the Lord, he's seen fit to glorify himself by my stewardship of his resources. And now that God has taken it all away, I say, blessed be the name of the Lord, because he's seen fit to glorify himself in my life by causing me to suffer a little bit and to depend on him in faith. But God is my treasure, and I am not poorer, though I've lost everything that I have. That's an amazing way to live, isn't it? Don't you wish you could live like that in the depths of your heart, to lose everything and say, I'm not poorer, because I have God. And friends, that's what Paul is aiming for in this prayer for us. His prayer is not some pie-in-the-sky, idealized religious language kind of a prayer. He means it. And he knows that if we would be filled with all the fullness of God, we would have that kind of confidence in our lives. When God in Christ is our treasure, nothing that can befall us will diminish our treasure. Nothing can take away anything from you when you have everything in God. Amen? When God in Jesus Christ is your treasure, you will have true contentment and true hope and true joy in the Holy Spirit. And your joy will not be that kind of plastered on, superficial, oh, isn't it good to be a Christian kind of fake thing. It will be real and it will stand the test of time. I'll tell you, in my own life, I have been through some stuff as a believer. My mom has died. My father died. I've had other close friends of mine die. I had a couple of my friends who I was very close to and colleagues of mine in ministry who just made a shipwreck of their lives and went off and had affairs and hurt the church and hurt me. It's been difficult to walk with people through that. I've suffered 
through not having enough resources. I remember one day I had absolutely no food in my cupboard. And I remember many times when I was facing times where I didn't seem to have enough money or whatever. I've been through things, and you have too. But through it all, the smile of God Almighty is still on my face because He is my joy. And when my joy is rooted in Him, it's not movable. Jesus Christ, friends, is greater than we can imagine. And He's immovable, the Bible says. He's more immovable than 10 billion mountains stacked on top of each other. He cannot be moved. And if your hope is anchored in Him, if your joy is anchored in Him, it cannot be moved. It cannot be moved. Now, wouldn't it be great to live a life like that? No matter what happens to you, of course, the winds shift about. But you can't be moved. Let the winds come. Let the rains fall. Let the lightning strike. Let the tornadoes do what they're going to do. But in Christ, the house of our lives will not be moved because He is immovable. That's the kind of life that Paul is praying for for us. He wants us to drive the anchor of our souls deep, deep, deep into the being of God. That's what he's praying for us. And how I want that for you and how I want that for me. What Paul is praying for is not so much for us just to know a bunch of stuff about God or to come to sound like intellectual, educated, mature Christians or to be able to sound smart at parties or to defend theological positions. Maybe it's important to defend certain theologies, but in the end, the design is for us to be filled with all the fullness of God that we might find a true anchor for our souls. A true anchor for our souls. Nothing will move us if we are in Christ. So my final exhortation to us this morning is let us pursue the things of Christ. Let us pursue Him with a voracious, passionate, intense commitment, with a discipline. Let us go after the things of God. Every gain you have in the knowledge of God literally increases your capacity to be filled with all the fullness of God. So go after Him. Go after Him with all of your heart. Seek after God and rest on these promises. The Bible says, You will seek Me and you will find Me when you seek Me with your whole heart. So God promises you, if you will go after Him, He will be found by you and you will be filled with all the fullness of God. Or, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For what? They shall be satisfied. That's a promise. Or, it says in, in the, the Scripture, um, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and everything else that you need in your life will be added to you. When God is your treasure and you pursue Him, you will be filled with all of His fullness and He will become an anchor for your soul. So let's go after Him with all of our hearts and enter into the yes and the amen of Paul's prayer here this morning. Let's pray. Father, how I pray that You would answer Paul's prayer in the reality of our daily lives. How I pray that You would make these words real to us and meaningful to us. How I pray in Christ that You would cause us to look again at these words today, this afternoon, later this week. Soak them in. Let them become more and more real to us. How I pray that You would give us, grant us this prayer. That Christ would dwell in us that we would have strength to comprehend, to grasp with all the saints through all the ages what is the height and depth and width and breadth of You. 
That we might know the love of Christ that surpasses our ability to know. And that we might be filled with all the fullness of You. O oh God, make it true that You are our treasure this week. Lord, we want You to be everything for us. And the truth of the matter is that we're sinful people and our hearts are divided. So please, in Christ, forgive us our sins. As someone prayed in the prayer meeting this morning, Lord, may You take our sins and just put them on the shoulders of Christ. And may we see that there. All of our sins of division of heart, hanging on the cross, crucified, atoned for. And now in Christ we stand before You blameless. And now in Christ You are pleased to answer any prayer that we pray according to Your will. And we know that this prayer is according to Your will because it comes right out of the Bible. So please God, I pray, in Christ, forgive us our sins and fulfill our desires in You. We love You, Lord, and we pray now that You would go with us as we are dismissed as we go to our picnic or whatever it is that each of us will do, cause us to be filled with You. Cause us to remember You. Cause us to pursue You in all things, I pray, in the glorious and the great and the gracious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.